Seeing is believing, people say. If I can see something with my own eyes, then I have objective evidence and I can draw an accurate conclusion on what I've seen. That's fair enough. But we must admit that seeing is believing as an approach is not foolproof, is it? We learn in science class, if not in the actual world, of a mirage. It looks like water on the road ahead. It looks like there's a lake in the desert. But we realize it's just heat rising from the earth. What we see is not what's actually there. I'll not go into the details, but I once found myself uh, as a non-participant in the middle of a brawl at a basketball game. And once the police arrived and had everybody interviewed, I was amazed by the conflicting stories. Things everybody agreed on happened, and they saw different people do it. It was amazing. There was absolutely nothing that could be gained out of this conversation. Everyone saw, but they all saw different things. Seeing is believing is not foolproof. It's not a foolproof means of determining truth, nor is it always possible. Where would we be if we believed only what we see? I may not see germs, but believing in them can allow me to save my life. I did not witness D-Day in World War II, but my perception of history would be delusional if I refused to believe it happened because I was not there. They'd put me away. Indeed, we embrace many vital truths by faith in what we hear reported to us, not by what we actually see. And fundamental among these truths is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You may be skeptical here today. You're just really not sure that Jesus Christ truly rose from the dead in bodily form. You've heard the account, you know about it, in part it's probably why you're here today, but you really don't know. Is that really possible? There's others who rejoice today to have our faith bolstered and encouraged and to remember what we have placed our faith in, the resurrection of Christ. In either case, we're aided by the narrative of a disciple of Jesus who insisted that seeing is believing. We find his story in John chapter 20, and I encourage you back there. We've looked at the first half of this chapter today, and we begin at verse 19 of John chapter 20. It had been a crazy day. The disciples of Jesus awoke that first day of the week to that heart-wrenching reminder, Jesus is dead. You've woken up with that perhaps once in a while. Sleep allows you to forget the sorrow of heart, but when you awake, it's there to face you. No one ever faced that sorrow more than these disciples. Jesus was dead. The one that they had wholly trusted as Messiah to rescue God's people from their sin, to set up His eternal kingdom, this one had been executed on a Roman cross. The light of their lives had been extinguished. 
complicating matters was the real and imminent danger of the authorities that had captured Jesus and had Him crucified, finding them. And yet, as this day passed, reports began to trickle in of an empty tomb and of Jesus appearing to individual disciples. Never had such overwhelming sorrow, intense fear, mixed with such audacious hope. The Gospel according to Luke reports that the disciples were discussing the appearance of Jesus to two disciples from the village of Emmaus when we find in this first section here of chapter 20 verse 19 and following that Jesus appears to ten apostles and He commissions them to spread the good news of forgiveness in the risen Savior. We pick up the account at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Remember, Jesus had been executed as a direct threat to the Jewish establishment and to the ever-important peace of the Roman Empire. And so His disciples are genuinely and understandably afraid. They have barricaded themselves into this room, probably an open, larger room situated atop a flat-roofed house, as would have been typical in that day. Whether Jesus passed through the wall or simply appears, we're not told. Our curiosity is not satisfied that way. But we do know what he says. He is suddenly standing there among them in their conversation and he says, peace be with you. A peace be with you was a common greeting in that day. It was probably all that stood between them and a heart attack. They they were thankful for this word, peace be with you. But Jesus seems to intend more than a simple greeting. As we will see, he repeats this phrase in this setting. As one has put it, peace is what his death emphatically procured. And peace is what his resurrection emphatically sealed. Peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his feet. The resurrection body is different in some respects we are seeing. It can materialize or pass through a wall or whatever exactly takes place here. But there is continuity. It's the same body. This is one of the unique teachings of the Christian church, of the Christian faith. It is the same body. The marks of the executioner's nails were healed, but the scars remained on Jesus' wrists. The Greek word hand, meaning the hand as we take it, but also including the wrist, And obviously, if you put a nail into a palm, it's not going to hold a whole body for very long. But it would be put through the opening in the wrist, and the bone structure would hold the victim on the cross. These wounds in Jesus' wrists were still visible. Healed, but there. And the wound in His side, where the spear had pierced that side, was still visible. It was healed, but you could see it. It was the same Christ. Wounds apparently persist with the resurrected body, perhaps as symbols of suffering for righteousness. 
Whether Jesus is unique or not, we cannot know. But here, it was clear, this was the crucified Christ. He is risen indeed. And the disciples, we see, were glad when they saw the Lord. Seeing was believing, in their case. The depression, the sorrow, the grief, the confusion... All that had overwhelmed them for parts of three days now gives way to pure joy. This is our Savior. He lives. He was alive. And His claims were vindicated then. This Jesus of the scars, Edward Shilito's famous poem, says the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. A God here who understands suffering. There's a significance To the fact that the body of our Savior, the conquering, risen Savior, bears wounds. He understands suffering. He's experienced it. He doesn't sit by glibly with a smile on His face as He simply watches our misery with no knowledge. This is the Jesus of the scars. This is a God who dies for His enemies. What God does that? To die for His enemies. This is a God who conquers by humility and self-sacrifice, and yet a God who truly conquers. This Jesus of the scars. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Peace be with you. Again, the repetition indicating it's more than just a greeting. Jesus' mission from the Father was to bring peace to His people. A peace He secured by dying in the place of sinners to pay the cost of their sin and reconcile them to God. This peace with God is possible through the sacrifice of Christ paying the cost of sin. And now as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, he says. There's significance again to what we find here very subtly. But before Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, he was sent to earth by the Father to proclaim salvation in his name to sinners. We can say that one is born, but Jesus was sent. So prior To His incarnation, He was and was sent by the Father to be born and to bear the sins of His people. Jesus now sends the disciples on that very same mission. Verse 22, when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The apostles' mission requires the power of the Holy Spirit who will minister to them in the absence of Jesus after He ascends to heaven. This mission of the church that goes on today is in the authority of the risen Christ. And it is empowered by the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, a a warning here. As a church, we are growing to understand the Scriptures. And so we 
seek to put them together properly and understand them and grow in our knowledge of what is here in the Scriptures. And for some, this next few minutes will take you on a course that will seem very confusing perhaps. But hang with us here, it will not take long. But I think it is important for us to ask what on earth is going on here and to understand it in light of all of Scripture. What is going on here when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit? Well, let me give you a couple of ideas that are commonly expressed. The first is that this is a reference to the baptism of the Spirit at Pentecost, recorded in Acts 2, and John is referring to that event thematically, not chronologically. He inserts it here in this narrative, so to speak, pointing to the power that will enable them to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. So he's talking about Pentecost to come, and remembering John is writing to people who have already experienced Pentecost. They know about it. So it's certainly a possible solution. I think there's reasons to reject this notion. A second view, Jesus bestows the Holy Spirit to the apostles in a way that is different from Acts 2. He does indeed breathe on them the Holy Spirit, but it's somehow distinct from the baptism of the Spirit that will come in Acts 2. One of the reasons that I would reject this view is the fact that no one can agree as to what the two givings of the Spirit exactly are in relationship to one another. There's all kinds of ideas that are expressed. It's not a reason to reject the view outright, but it certainly brings it into question. I'm more persuaded by this third view that Jesus speaks prophetically about Pentecost in Acts 2. A couple of supports for that, just very briefly. But in John 13, 8, we have the prophetic function of foot washing. As Jesus washes Peter's feet, he says, he speaks of cleanness, which we know is pointing forward to the redemption that Christ will make through his death and the washing of sins that will come. Just gives us an indication of this kind of thing happening in the book of John. Secondly, Thomas is not present. And there's no makeup session, so to speak, for Thomas. So if whatever Thomas missed, it was not essential to the mission of the church. There's at least no indication that Christ ever breathed on him the Spirit of God, and he was not there. And thirdly, the apostles remained unchanged in contrast to the results of the baptism of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. They remain in the grip of fear and will later be told to wait for the baptism of the Spirit at Pentecost before starting their mission. So whatever is happening here really waits yet on Acts 2 anyway. So we find these same disciples then preaching boldly in the streets of Jerusalem after Acts 2 and the baptism of the Spirit at Pentecost, but not after this breathing out of the Spirit by Christ. Now one of the maybe further supports of this idea is that you see the words here in verse 22, He breathed on them. The phrase on them is actually interpretive. It's not in the Greek text. It says simply, Jesus breathed. He sighed. And He said, receive the Holy Spirit. I would take that prophetically. This giving will be to come very soon at Pentecost in Acts 2. 
a fair debate. Many would disagree with that idea. But just putting together, we need to put this together with Acts 2 as we're putting our Bibles together and learning how to read them. It's very significant that we do that. But whatever the case, it is clear that the Holy Spirit must empower the apostles for this mission. A mission that is now summarized in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now that hits us right away as saying, is that not God's prerogative to forgive sins? He's giving that to His disciples. They can now decide who they're going to forgive and who they're not. Well, that's of course not what is happening here. Part of the problem, again, is the English text. It's a little difficult to translate, but they have been forgiven is passive. They have been withheld is passive. In other words, God forgives or does not forgive sins, not the disciples. But here's the key. The disciples are to participate in the work that God is doing, to forgive people and to withhold forgiveness from people. We're to partner with God in the assessment of sinners. That is, we declare forgiven those who repent of their sins and receive Jesus' free gift of redemption. In some sense, that's what we do as a church when we hear the testimony of an individual for membership in this assembly. We declare forgiven one who's testimony of repentance and trust in Christ and changed life is evidence that Christ has saved them, that they've been forgiven. We also speak, and let me add, we also do that when one is baptized in this church as a testimony of faith. But we, we also speak for heaven by insisting that those who refuse to repent and trust Christ as Savior remain unforgiven before God. Now, in our culture, this second aspect is a little more troubling to people. They don't have any problem a church saying you're forgiven, but they have a problem with a church saying you're not forgiven. I tell you, if, if a church does not have the capacity to declare some people unforgiven, it's not a Christian church. It's not following the calling of Jesus. And we look at this not as Yay, we get to condemn people. We look at this as a necessary means of saving people. Of rescuing them from the destruction that their sin deserves. This is a vital aspect of a church's ministry. We don't run around rejoicing to tell people they're unforgiven. We go about as Christ did and we say, peace be unto you. But there is a peace that comes from God alone. And if you refuse to repent of your sin and you reject what Jesus Christ has done to provide forgiveness, we have a responsibility as a church to side with heaven on this. If God has not reconciled you to himself through the blood of Christ, then there is something that yet needs to happen in your life. You need to be reconciled to God. And so we would say as a church, it would be wrong for us to say you are reconciled to God when you are not. But it is our joy and our privilege to say, be reconciled to God. It is by a free gift of His grace that you can have a right relationship with God today. Christ has done that work for sinners 
And so the church is to announce we are forgiven. Others are unforgiven. But forgiveness remains as a gift. So this is the mission on which He sends His disciples. In Matthew, Jesus uses this same idea in the context of church discipline. Here, I think He's using it in the context of evangelism. The church forgives and the church holds unforgiven in partnership with heaven. Oh, it was quite a meeting. A meeting in which faith was fueled by sight. But we know, of course, that someone was missing from this meeting. And so as we come to verse 24 and following, we find here Jesus appearing to Thomas and exhorting him to believe in the risen Savior. So he appears to the ten, minus Judas, of course, and Thomas is not there for reasons we don't know. But now he appears to Thomas. So verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, Thomas Aramaic, twin, Didymus in the Greek, he was not with them when Jesus came. We're not told why. Why was he absent? I don't think it's wise to supply a reason. The Bible does not supply. But having rejoined the group, the other disciples reported the good news to Thomas, as you would expect, verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And the Greek text indicates here, we, they kept on telling him this. So probably more than one is saying, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. No, Thomas, really, we've seen Him. He appeared to us. He talked to us. He commissioned us. Now, we expect a certain response from Thomas. These are his friends. These are his partners in ministry. This is Jesus' inner circle. And with united voice, these trustworthy men are sharing this news. We expect a certain response. What we find is the middle of verse 25. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, we may credit Thomas for refusing to be a conformist and we may respect him for refusing to glibly profess what he did not believe. We may even push ourselves to commend Thomas for taking the defeat of Jesus' death as a man. Death danced in victory on Jesus' grave. Thomas stood like a defeated athlete expecting to win, but now staring as a loser into the stands of fanatical fans that are cheering against him because he has lost the game. You lost. We won. Jesus is gone, gone, gone. Yes, says Thomas, we lost. Recently, Michigan State basketball coach Tom Izzo lost the game and the fans of the other team stormed the court. Now when they do that, you know you're a good team. When the other team storms the court because they beat you. It was just a, a game earlier this year. A policeman put a hand on him and said, let's get you out of here, coach. We want to make sure that you're safe. And he said, no, get off of me. I want to watch this. I want to watch how hard it is to beat us. I want to look into the face of these screaming fans 
and take this to heart. I mean, you've got to respect that to some level. Not just, you know, put his tail between his legs and run into the locker room and curl up in a ball and cry, but just look into the face of those screaming fans. That's kind of how I see, for me, basketball and Christianity mesh all the time. But, <laughs> but that's kind of... That's kind of where Thomas is here. He's looking, he says, no, get your hands off of me. I'm going to look this defeat in the face. And I will never believe unless I see. I've been disappointed to the depths, to the core of my being. And I will not believe unless I touch him. As we move away from our commendation of Thomas, there is a dark side to this response. This is willful, idolatrous unbelief, to be honest about it. For Thomas seeing was believing because he trusted no one but himself. I mean, let's step back and think of the context here. First of all, he has the Old Testament Scriptures, which indicate that resurrection is something that God rarely, but occasionally does do. He does raise someone from the dead. And he had accounts of that in his Hebrew Scriptures of resurrection. Resurrection was a thing. And Thomas knew it. Secondly, Jesus repeatedly prophesied that he would die and rise from the dead on the third day. He taught his disciples this. And Thomas was there when he taught them. More than once. And thirdly, Thomas has the eyewitness account of these disciples. Ten of them. He has all of that there for him to believe. And he says, I refuse to believe. Unless I see what I demand. Jesus standing with me and seeing the wounds. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Perhaps in the same room. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. This is deja vu. I mean, exactly a week later. And by the way, the eight days later, the way they calculated time, this is the next Sunday. The exact same experience. This time, Thomas is present. In verse 27, Jesus says to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. His all-knowing powers now fully exercised. Jesus knows precisely what Thomas had said. And with a gracious but pointed approach, Jesus rebukes him, do not disbelieve, but believe. There's a great difference between doubt that stems from an incapacity to understand how something is rational and this kind of doubt. We might take Mary's question, for instance. The angel appears to to her and says that you will conceive Messiah. Well, every Jewish girl could have waited for this day, hoped for this day. But Mary says, but there's a problem. I'm not married. I've never been with a man. And how can I have a child? That's a question that doesn't understand rationally how this is conceivable. But then there are the questions of doubt that really are hiding a refusal to believe. For Thomas, who had the Hebrew Scriptures 
and knew that God raised the dead, who had the eyewitness report of his ten fellow disciples, these men of integrity. For Thomas, who had heard Jesus teach that he would rise again, this is a disbelief that is immoral. How does Thomas respond immediately in repentance? Verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Thomas is not using God's name in vain, as is so commonly done these days. He means what he says here, my Lord and my God. Jesus rises from the dead as he says that he will. Thomas concludes that Jesus is God. And Jesus does not correct him. Verse 29. Jesus says to him, in fact, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus commends those who respond in faith to the witness of the disciples and the prophecies of the Bible. Only a small number of people on the planet could actually see the risen Christ. Others would need to do what? They would need to hear the eyewitness reports and they would need to trust God's Word. That's how faith will come. That's how faith comes in many areas of our life and many things that we learn about. We hear the report and we respond in faith. And when we do, Christ says we are blessed by God, that is accepted by God, beneficiaries of His grace, finding in Him our soul's delight and strength. Now the point is not that the resurrection appearances were concessions to the weakness of the disciples. Rather, by God's design, our faith rests on the eyewitness accounts of these disciples. The point of this narrative is that we must accept the reality of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead by faith. There are many historical events that are significant to us that we do not see, but we believe. And in that belief, there is life and hope in this historical event of Christ crucified and risen. We're uniquely blessed to embrace that. Indeed, this is the whole point of the book of John, verse 30. In these last two verses, we see Thomas's confession expresses the very purpose of John's book. And this is probably why it is placed here at this, at this location in the book. Now, verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ that is, the Messiah, the one promised to be sent by God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Every miraculous sign that Jesus performed, every teaching session He led was recorded by John to encourage our belief in Jesus as God's promised Messiah. And secondly, to encourage our belief that Jesus is the Son of God. And when you hear Son of God, we would often very naturally take that to mean that Jesus was born by God. But the way this phrase is used consistently in the New Testament is that He is equal in authority with God. We see that going on here in the text, do we not? 
What did Jesus say? I go to my God earlier in chapter 20. But here Thomas says to Jesus, my God. And Jesus does not disapprove. Jesus is in some sense the Son and the Father distinct and yet of one essence, both referenced as God. Thomas's confession then is the climax of the purpose of John's report of all that Jesus had done and of who Jesus was. And so we, as we consider this account, and we place ourselves in a sense in Thomas's position, we come to the same point of belief in what we find declared by eyewitnesses. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus is God's eternal Son, the Savior who paid the penalty of your sin on the cross and reconciles sinners to God? Not a nice story. Do you believe the historical reality and the significance of this historical reality? Well, some here may honestly be very skeptical. You say, I, I'm coming to understand the point. I see how it fits into Christian doctrine, but I really don't know that I can believe that. That Jesus rose from the dead physically. You know, if for no other reason, this sermon on this Easter Sunday has put you, in a sense, in Thomas's position. In his position before he saw the risen Savior. You're in a sense sitting right there with him now. And the key for you to conceive is that faith comes not by sight. Nor by works. But by receiving this message of good news. The Bible consistently draws this theme out that it is by hearing the message by conceiving the truth and responding in faith to that truth that God saves His people from their sins. It's not by what you do. It's not by what you see. It's not ultimately by what you test. It is by what you hear and what you believe. Now, your skepticism about Christ's resurrection does not result from a lack of proof, let me say but really from moral resistance to God's will. There are manifold evidences to Jesus' resurrection, and perhaps we'll look at them another time. But just to reference them in outline form, just a few, is the empty tomb. This is never a matter that has been refuted in 2,000 years. The tomb was empty, and that fact alone demonstrates the resurrection because of all of the pieces that went around that. Secondly is the radical change of the disciples. We find them barricaded in a room in fear of their enemies. And then we find them a matter of weeks later proclaiming Christ on the streets of Jerusalem with no fear for their life. Thirdly, do you know how long it takes to develop a legend? Experts say you really can't pull it off within two generations. Thomas puts this to rest when he says, my Lord and my God. 
There weren't two generations to turn Jesus into a God. This happened immediately in their lives. Within a matter of years after Jesus' death and resurrection, there are disciples that are writing that he is the creator of the universe. There's not enough time for a legend to develop. This one they knew, this one some of them had touched had been taught by, had seen in daily life, this one who was crucified on a cross was the creator of the universe, they wrote, with clear mind. Or fourthly, the worldwide response to the radical claim of Jesus risen from the dead, crossing cultures, language groups, and the like. And here's the key phrase, apart from coercion. Christian faith has never been spread by coercion. Christianity has been spread by coercion at certain places and times. But not genuine faith in Christ. We worship the Jesus of the scars. It's a preposterous account. But both those who saw Christ crucified and to this very day as we have been praying together as a church, there are those that give their life for the one who died. For the God of the scars. If you believe in a myth, and let me say first, everything hinges on the resurrection of Christ. Everything. Without it, we have no faith. But if that, if that faith is built merely on a myth, there's a certain point where you cross into the shadow of the gallows or in front of the sword. And you say, you know what, I think I'm going to rethink this myth. But for 2,000 years, people are laying down their lives as they are right now today for this crucified and risen Savior. There's massive amounts of evidence. And I give just a few sketchy thoughts. Seeing is believing. Indeed it is at times. But demanding sight is often a cover for entrenched unbelief. And failing to believe God is idolatry, John says in 1 John chapter 5, 20 and 21. It's self-worship. Will you insist on unbelief? Will you insist on remaining skeptical? Or will you join those who can say with the Apostle Peter in his first epistle, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You do not now see Him, but you love Him. Faith in Christ comes by trusting the good news declared by the apostles and, its result, and it results in eternal life. So that we can say and confess together today with the Gospel of John and Jesus' words, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who have heard the message and responded in faith to Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins and risen to give eternal, everlasting life. Let's bow in thanksgiving. We give thanks. 
We praise you, our Father, for the wonder of this saving plan. And we pray in behalf of those who, if we knew them and knew all of the account of their life, would have to say as a church, they are unforgiven. They are in a state of rejection of you. Perhaps they don't even fully recognize it. But by depending on their own works or demanding their own criteria, they remain in unbelief. I pray that you would bring conviction of sin and bring a sense of hope that Christ is indeed the Savior, the Lord of heaven and earth, the risen Lord who is coming again and who is now calling out a people for His name. And may we rejoice as a church someday in the future by Your grace to declare them forgiven. Because they've come to repent of sin and to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray that You would bring that about as only You can. And we pray together here today for those who know Christ as Savior. We rejoice. We give thanks. We praise You for Your saving grace. And we thank You that the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. In this historical, theologically rich truth, we stake our lives, we rest our eternities, and we find in this message the joy of our souls. We give you praise, and I ask that you would steer this church in the days ahead and for the remainder of this day to praise you with heart and soul, with all of our might and strength to praise You for this good news. Pray through Christ.